This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. <clears throat> This is Thomas Merton from a piece called A Transforming Vision. I have the immense joy of being a human being, a member of a race in which truth and love became embodied. As if the sorrows of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained, there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. This changes nothing in the sense and value of my solitude, for it is in fact the function of solitude to make one realize such things with a clarity that would be impossible to anyone completely immersed in the other cares, the other illusions of a tightly collective existence. My solitude, however, is not my own, for I see now how much of it belongs to them, and that I have a responsibility for it in their regard, not just in my own. It is because I am one with them that I owe it to them to be alone. And when I am alone, they are not they, but my own self. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be then that we would fall down and worship each other. But this cannot be seen, only believed and understood by a peculiar gift. Shugen Sensei quoted Merton last Sunday, and I too had been reading him, a collection of, of his writings, and I was struck by this passage And I wanted to speak about that peculiar gift that he refers to, by which the truth of things can be seen. And I'd like to speak of it as the call to contemplation, for I believe it is a calling. Although all of us have the seeds of awakening, and all of us have the capacity to make those seeds, to cause those seeds to bloom, not all of us will do so. Not all of us will choose to disentangle ourselves, however briefly, from all those cares that he speaks of, of our collective existence, from the tug of work and family and friends, all the many other interests and responsibilities that in fact do make it difficult for us to be alone, to be still and silent. And so I believe that to some extent, or perhaps always, it is necessary to be called to contemplation, to this work of of turning inward, of moving beyond words and images, ideas and opinions into... um, a direct experience of that light, that illumination, that we're all walking around in and yet are so often blind to.
And reading this reminded me, not that it's far from my mind ever, but it, it reminded me again of an experience I had doing a hermitage a number of years ago. And it was um, one of those very simple moments, a flash, really. I mean, it was so, so short that nevertheless changed me. And I had um, entered that hermitage with um, a considerable degree of turmoil. I was very unsettled. I felt hurt. I was angry. And part of me understood that I needed to be alone and that I needed to be with what I was feeling. And yet, part of me did not want to do that at all. But the part of me that did won, and so I I went. And it was a difficult week. Um, I normally love um, doing hermitage practice. I love the solitude. This was difficult. It was a difficult week, and it was really... I rode a, a roller coaster of emotions, but towards the end of the week, I started to, to settle down a little bit and to feel quieter. And um, I was lying on a patch of grass um, in the sun after a long stretch of, of sitting one day, and it was very quiet, it was very still. It was hot, it was the middle of the summer, and except for crickets trilling, you couldn't really hear very much. And, um, you know, I had my, my hands behind my back and my eyes were closed. And for the first time that week, I felt that I could really um, relax or, or rest into myself. And it was probably around noon because the sun was almost directly overhead. And um, I was lying there just listening to the crickets and just feeling my breath and the prickle of the grass and the back of my hands, and and at one point, I opened my eyes very quickly, and I looked at the sun, and then I closed them again. And so I had the after image on the back of my my eyelids, inside of my eyelids, you know, perfectly round orange circle on a red background, almost like a brand on my mind, like an engraving. And in the quiet, I heard a voice say, You are that light. And in a way, I've been trying to to live that ever since. As if the sorrows of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this... (coughs) But there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. And in one way, there is no way of telling others, although women and men have been trying for thousands of years. And yet, there's no real way of telling, of showing others that things are, are always expressing their own being, that they are always in truth that they live in it, although we don't always live out of it. Hence, our world. And yet, the fact is that we are in that truth. 
But unless we can slow down enough and be quiet enough to see and to hear, we miss it. We miss things. We miss ourselves. We miss each other. And isn't it interesting that in order to not miss each other, we need to be alone for a while. He says, my my solitude belongs to you. So in a way, if, if someone asks, you know, why do you sit? We spend your time in this way, we could say, so that I won't miss you. So that I won't miss my life. Because otherwise, so often we do miss what is so um, completely self-evident from one perspective, what is so unarguable, what is so clear. And you know, after a while in my practice, this is how I, I learned to recognize what I, when I had really seen uh, a koan, because I would see it and I would think, oh, of course, or even just even more subtle, it was just, yes. In the beginning, it was like, that's it? How can that be it? And then the more time went on, it's still, of course, of course that's it. It seemed too simple, you know, too close. As close as my eyes, as close as my breath, my heart. And therefore, I couldn't see it. The word contemplation means to gaze attentively, or to observe. And um, in ancient Rome, an augur or a diviner would contemplate natural signs, especially the behavior of birds, to, um, and interpret them as, as omens for what a ruler or a priest should then do. And um, one of the, the best-known examples was of a pope that was chosen that way, Pope Fabian, uh, 236. Apparently no one had even considered him as, as a pope, and they were sitting in, in conclave, and a dove landed on his head. And, and I don't know how that worked. I don't know if they were sitting outside, or did the dove fly through the window and land on his head? And everybody took it as a sign of the Holy Spirit, and unanimously they voted for him. And he became the Pope. And apparently he turned out to be pretty, pretty decent. Um, and, you know, as human beings, we're, we're, we really are infinitely interesting. I mean, you know, most likely we would not um, do this now. And yet it's, it's telling, like, what do we believe in? What do we think is important? How do we interpret what we see? Which, of course, is always true, and is certainly true in the work of contemplation. The, the, you know, what the mystics describe, what they see, is, of course, framed from their particular context. So if you're a Christian, it might be the passion of Christ. And yet there is something underneath, you could say, these signs that really is universal. They take a particular shape, 
but that is, that is pointing to something. And so in Christian mysticism, contemplation became a, a kind of prayer or meditation in which the mystic would have a, a direct experience of God or the divine. But it was a silent prayer. It had no, no images, no words. Sometimes words or images would lead up to um, that, that moment of, you could say, of union. And yet there was a silent communication, a, a, a relationship, an ongoing relationship with God, with truth, with love, with sacredness. And many of the mystics speak of this. Saint Teresa of Avila was said to to be in constant communication with God. And in one of the the dialogues, um, she was by herself, she had been praying, and um, in that silence, she felt a presence and um, whom she called her beloved. And, And the beloved asked her, who are you? And she said, I am Teresa of Jesus. Who are you? And the other responded, I am Jesus of Teresa. How could it be otherwise, really? And we could say, well, aren't we just talking to ourselves? Yes, in a way, yes. But who is that self? Who is or what is the one talking? Who's the one listening? And where do these words come from? That was kind of more more intimate, but um, there was a story. She was apparently a force. Um, she she founded. I don't know if it, I can remember if it was eleven or fourteen convents in her life and two monasteries. And so she was constantly traveling to set up these communities. There was a lot of uh, dissension in her in her community, and so she was always, you could say, negotiating. And apparently, she was very good at it. And so there was always this. Um, struggle, or um, I wouldn't even necessarily call it conflict because she didn't, between that outer work and the work of contemplation, which she's, she's very well known for, the interior castle. But one of the stories is that as she was traveling to, to open one of these convents, they um, were caught in a flood, and one of the rivers was very swollen, and they lost all their, um, all their stuff, all their equipment, and she heard a voice that, that said there was God saying to her, this is how I treat my friends. And so she answered, well, no wonder you have so few then, my Lord. <laughs> and that is, I think, the, the paradox of contemplation is that we have to be uh, alone in order to really, truly be in relationship, to learn how to be, perhaps, in relationship. And yet in in that aloneness we realize we're never alone. Not really. When I am alone, they are not they, but my own self.
And when I was thinking of this and I was writing this talk, I, I got a very strong sense of, of Daito Roshi. And he didn't speak of contemplation per se, but he would often talk about this subtle communication. And he would quote Dogen and Thoreau and Evelyn Underhill. Thoreau said, I hear beyond the range of sound. I see beyond the verge of sight. I move through the reality limit in order to directly come into contact with what lies beyond, what cannot be apprehended with eye or ear. And Pseudo-Dionysus said that the contemplative's work and movement is is a circular motion, like like an eagle circling uh, up uh, above a quarry And um, another um, philosopher, um, contemplative, said that it's, it's also it's in, 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 in contemplation, it is uh, you're surrounded or you're enclosed by a circle with no center. The center is nowhere, and the circumference is everywhere. So it cannot be a linear path. We cannot sit here on our seat, the Buddha's seat, the seat of enlightenment, and be thinking about work or rehashing a conversation, planning what we're going to present in face-to-face teaching, and really be in contemplation. Evelyn Underhill Underhill said, contemplation is to transcend alike the stages of symbol and silence and energize enthusiastically on those high levels which are dark to the intellect but radiant to the heart. It is a supreme manifestation of that indivisible power of knowing which lies at the root of all our artistic and spiritual satisfactions. But this term, high levels, you know, we shouldn't be deceived by it. The Buddha, when he was eight years old, it is said, was sitting under a rose apple tree during a spring festival, and he was watching the ground being plowed and the, the worms being cut, and a farmer you know, plowing with, a, with an ox and the sun on his back. And he, he very quietly... Um, wondered, you know, why do we have to suffer so? Right? And, he, and he entered into a, a deep state of contemplation, of rest, of immersion in what is. We can enter into contemplation with our breaths, with our breath. And that is why it's unfortunate you know, when uh, after a week or two or a month or two, people start asking, well, when can I work on koans? And, you know, and I often say, well, you know, the Buddha never worked on a single koan his entire life, and you know, he did pretty well. <laughs> the object of his meditation, primary, not soul, but the primary uh, object of his, of his meditation or subject was the breath. And he... Th- thought it was so important 
He called it the, the Tathagata's dwelling. But we underestimate it. We see it as, as training wheels for the real thing, the real work. And so we think, well, you know, I can, I can follow my breath very well right now, so what's next? And it is that view, that thought, what's next, that gets us into trouble. It's that view that stops us from actually experiencing that contemplation. Nothing's next. Nothing's next. This is it. This is the whole thing. That's what we see. And if we really see that, then we understand how incongruous, really, how irrelevant it is to ask what's next. One evening I was in the Dokstan room and I was closing the line uh, for, for Daito Roshi. And I was about to leave, I was walking out the door, and he says, Suisala. He didn't often call me Suisala, it's just when he wanted to get my, my attention. And, or he would call me Vanessa, like out of the blue, for months he would start calling me Vanessa. And then he would go back to Suisa. No explanation, I thought, did he forget my name? Like, what's happening? <laughs> I always had some suspicion that it was, that there was something, that there was a teaching. But I don't know. But this time, you know, he called me Suisola, and he says, listen, what is that? And so I listened, and I said, um, Katie did. Actually, I didn't say that. I had no idea what a Katie did was. But I, I just probably said insects. And he said, no, but what are they saying? And I said, well, um, I don't know. What are they saying? And he said, this is it. This is it. This is it. And then he started laughing. <laughs> at me, I think. He often laughed at me. You know, he, would, he would pinch my cheek and say, you're so serious. And then he would laugh <laughs> even more. <laughs> this is it. This is it. I, I, I felt, I mean, I said this, but I, I felt that throughout... Um, my writing of this talk, a, a real sense of uh, nostalgia uh, for him. And um, just how um, important he, uh, he held up that subtle communication. How um, insistent he was, even, you know, at times, that we shut up enough to be able to hear it, to be able to sense it. This is it. This, my aching knees. This, my broken heart. This, the toilet I've been asked to clean. The conversation that I don't want to have. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get worse than this. Do you understand? And so often he would quote, quote Dogen, no creature ever falls short of its own completeness. Wherever it stands, it never fails to cover the ground. But how will we know that if we spend our time running around? <laughs> <laughs> 
How will we know that if we constantly tell ourselves we're falling short or that others are falling short? And it never fails to cover the ground. It's not a manner of, of, of speaking. And it doesn't come with a footnote that says, this is true except in this and this and this case. It's true. Period. It, we, can never fail to cover the ground because we are that ground. We are the cover. We are the failure. We are never. We are standing. We are whatever place we stand in. And we are none of those things. I, Suisse, am none of those things, and yet wherever I go, I see it. I meet it. If I have eyes to see, if I have ears to hear. And it's good, I think, to know that we cannot miss this truth, in fact. I mean, we can and do all the time, but only from the perspective of conventional truth. That in ultimate truth, we cannot miss it. We cannot stand apart. But we forget this. Our desires sing their siren song. And then we can't hear that call to contemplation. And so, you know, when, when we ask, you know, why do we have to get up so early? Why sit late at night? Why sit for long hours? To train ourselves. To train ourselves to hear. So that when our name is called, we can respond. And we can't do that in the midst of all that noise. I certainly, I I don't know any other way except to get very, very quiet. And not in a passive way. I mean, there are those who have described that contemplation as a, as a, um, Christian mystics have described it as, as listening to God, that that silence is listening to God. Somebody else described it as beholding. Beholding of truth, beholding of the way things are, the truth of things. And the, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing has another book. It's not quite as well known, but she or, or he says, you have reached a point, uh, it's called the, the Book of Privy Counseling. And they say, you have reached a point where your further growth in perfection in completeness, in wholeness, in clarity, in wisdom, demands that you do not feed your mind with meditations on the multiple aspects of your being. Now it is important that you seriously concentrate on the effort to abide continually in the deep center of your spirit, offering that naked, blind awareness of your being, which I call your first fruits. There is no name, no experience, and no insight so akin to the everlastingness of truth that what you can possess, perceive, and actually experience in the blind, loving awareness of this word is. There is no name, no experience, no insight closer or truer 
than the truth of our own being, of our own isness. There is no place closer to reality than the place we're standing on, that we find ourselves in. And that is why resistance is so challenging, why it can be uh, such an obstacle, but also why it can be so fruitful. Because in that moment when we're saying to ourselves, I don't want this, whatever the this is, effectively what we're saying is, I don't want reality. We're saying no to reality in that moment. And I'm not speaking about you know, injustice or violence. It should be resisted, but you know, the, the everyday refusals of reality that I think we're, we're all familiar with, that we um, often use up our energy with, And those, those expressions of, I don't like this, I don't want this, I don't deserve this, that that is where the energy goes. But what if instead, what if we were to choose is? What if we loved it? And as I said before, we don't actually have to like it, I don't think. It's not a matter of like or dislike. What if we loved its isness? What if we honored it? And that, that line of um, where Merton says, but if we saw the word like this, the world like this, then wouldn't we just fall to the ground worshiping each other? Um, I had just finished reading, rereading the brothers, brothers Karamazov. And um, there's a very powerful scene where the brothers are gathered with the father and um, the monks, the younger brother is a monk still at that, in that scene, and their elder, who's almost dying, Father Zosima. And the brothers, you know, they're all fighting, and the father is a buffoon, and they're really making a, quite a scene. And... Um, Ivan, the, uh, no, Dimitri, the middle brother, is irate with his father and he's, you know, threatening him and, and they're, they're all making quite a scene. And in an instant, without any warning, Father Sosima hobbles over to him, falls to the ground, falls on his knees first, and then does a full bow in front of him. And everybody just stops, you know, their, their jaws are on the floor. Everybody's completely embarrassed and they run away. And nobody understands what just happened. And you could see it, you know, many different ways. And given what happens later in the book, I mean, you know, you could say Father Sosima just saw the, the suffering that they would all, especially Dimitri, that they would all live through. But it reminded me of um, Bodhisattva, never disparaging, who would go to someone, stand in front of them and say, I would never dare disparage you, because you are, are destined to become a Buddha. You know, practically doing a prostration. In fact, I think he would do prostration sometimes. And people would stone him and would insult him. How dare you say that to me? 
And he would run the other side of the road and still say, well, I would never disparage you because you're still destined to become a Buddha. What kind of place do you have to be in to do that, to see that? What, how are you penetrating the human being in front of you that you're able to just um, prostrate to their being? Not their act, actions in that moment, their isness, their being. And how will we move beyond the reality limit if we don't first accept this reality? We, we can't. <clears throat> so in one way we could say that the work of contemplation is the profound practice of loving what is, of resting in and into what is, of not distancing ourselves from ourselves, which is what that resistance really is. I've mentioned before this little formula I developed really for myself, for all those times in which I resist and fight. Attend, allow, and accept. And attending is really, it's, it's turning towards that first step of deciding, I'm not going to avoid this. I'm not going to overlook this. I would rather not take this up, but I will. I'll just turn towards it. Allowing is giving it space. I don't like this. I wish it wasn't here. But since it is, I will give it enough space to see it. It's even giving space to that resistance and allowing for the possibility that there's more, that there's a place beyond it. It is really allowing ourselves to be with what is, even when we don't like it. And then accepting, in my mind, is, is that further step of saying yes to that reality. And, I've, and I, I um, started doing that as a practice some while back, of, of saying to myself, in a moment of deep resistance, I accept this. I accept this. It's just really another way of becoming intimate with it. And then that allows you to see how do you need to respond. Do you need to respond? Sometimes that's all it takes, that acceptance. But often there is something that is needed. And so saying, I accept this, two-thirds of the battle is one. Or more accurately, that turns that that moment of acceptance turns the battle into a, a gathering. You know, there's me, there's the thing I'm I'm dealing with, there's my feelings about it, and now we're all on the same side of the line and we're relating to one another. We're in relationship. Attend, allow, and accept. I should um, just clarify that 
you know, in the, in the deepest states of contemplation, to speak of relationship is, um, um, it, it can be a little deceiving because in, in that true moment of, of union, whether it's described, you know, in, in the, in the Christian tradition or certainly in our tradition, there is nothing. There, there is no other. There is no, Daira Roshi used to say, there is no possibility. He used to say, there's no relationship. You can only nod to yourself. The nodding really comes after. The words, the images come after, or sometimes before, leading up to it. And so that is why, you know, that a good way of, of describing it is as that beholding. You're not seeing it with your eyes. It's a, it's a deeper kind of What's well, a deeper kind of seeing? If all the light-emitting animals everywhere in this world would, for the purpose of illumination, shed light, one single ray issued from the orb of the sun would outshine them all. An infinitesimal would be all the luster of the hosts of light-emitting animals. I really love this verse from the Prajnaparamita Sutra. And I, I take it to mean, I understand it as that the light of wisdom outshines any other light, no matter how bright, no matter how numerous its hosts. And, you know, in Spanish, the, world, the word for firefly, luciérnaga, means a place of light. And if you think about it, I mean, for such tiny beings, they, they emit an enormous amount of light in terms of their volume. And this is saying, well, even if, you, if there were millions, billions of them, one ray of the sun would outshine them all. That light of wisdom would be brighter. But we could also shift this a little bit. You know, if all the light-emitting animals in the world, which is actually all of them, and all the light-emitting insentient beings, which is all of them, and what's an insentient being, actually? If all of them knew that they constantly shed light, knew that their light is exactly the same as that ray of sun, and if they all shed this light for the purpose of illumination, then this world would would be bathed in that light. From the tiniest corner to the vastest expanse, there would just be light. And we wouldn't even have to speak of it. We wouldn't speak of illumination because it would just be the air we breathe. It would be the way of things. And then there would be no more war, Smerton says. No more hatred and no more cruelty, no more greed. Though I suppose the big problem would be then that we would fall down and worship each other. And given the alternative, would that be so bad? Would that be so bad? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.